is entitled to the presumption of innocence and all of the protections of a criminal trial. But at the end of it, I suspect that he's going to be found guilty of a very serious set of federal crimes. That is Neil Katyal. I'm Margaret Sullivan, and this is American Crisis, a podcast that looks at the question, can journalism help to save democracy? Through the lens of Watergate in the 1970s and January 6th, 2021. By the way, all our episodes live over at margaretsullivan.substack.com, along with a bunch of bonus stuff, including written pieces and discussion threads. You can also support the show there or sign up for free. So each episode of American Crisis lands right in your email. That's margaretsullivan.substack.com. I'm really so pleased to have Neil Katyal on the podcast at this crucial time when the legal walls seem to be closing in on former President Donald Trump. And Neil is a constitutional lawyer and a lawyer who has argued 50-some cases before the Supreme Court. Most recently, he managed a huge win for democracy in the case known as Moore v. Harper. And that case was described by a former federal judge recently as the single most important case on American democracy and for American democracy in the nation's history. Neil is also a former acting Solicitor General of the United States and someone who's had posts in the Justice Department and has been active with the cause of Al Gore in the wake of the controversial 2000 election. So he is a true expert on the subjects that we're interested in here, and I'm just very thrilled to have him aboard. Welcome to American Crisis, the podcast that looks at the question, can journalism save democracy? Welcome, Neil Katyal. And certainly very, very pleased to have you on the podcast. And I know that you have started your own Substack podcast recently as well, right? Exactly. It's a pleasure to be with you. I followed your work for many years, and it's an honor to be on. And um, yeah, I believe that you and I are both launching Substack podcasts <laughs> at the very same time. Mine is called Courtside, and it's about the Supreme Court and its role in our democracy. Yeah, so I think they are a good fit together. We are the Substack guinea pigs for podcasts, which is it's kind of an honor. So let me jump in here. Uh, by saying that, Neil, you can be described in many ways as a law professor, an attorney, an outstanding attorney who has argued some 50 cases before the Supreme Court, including a very notable one recently that you prevailed in, you and your team, as you always say, a former acting Solicitor General of the United States. And at your core, I think it's fair to say you are a constitutional lawyer. So since this podcast looks at the question of can journalism save democracy through the lens of Watergate and January 6th, two events that are roughly 50 years apart, I'd like to start with this question. Why, in your view, as a constitutional lawyer, is the press the only specifically protected profession in the United States Constitution? And of course, I'm talking about the First Amendment here 
and the reference, the words that say that the press cannot be restricted by government. What did the founders have in mind with that? Yeah, so I, I, I think that you're right to start with that question and to say the press were specifically enumerated by the founders in a way that other professions, you know, doctors, lawyers, um, the like or not. And so there was something special. At the same time, I think, you know, as I'll explain in a minute, I think that the founders used capacious language like freedom of speech, which protected all of us in the performance of our jobs, not just uh, the press. And so, you know, I think there are two things going on. So first, I think the founders very much had in mind um, the power of the press, you know, particularly in the 1730s with John Wilkes and others who were, um, you know, doing uh, basically you know, writing about the uh, problems that the king uh, had and uh, with the colonists and the abuse and the trampling of individual rights and the like. And so they were well familiar with the ways in which an independent press could be a check on a tyrannical dictator. And so they did seek to single them out um, and that profession. But at the same time, I think they recognized that the press and freedom of the press is just a microcosm more generally for a set of freedoms and freedom of thought and speech, which are also encapsulated in the First Amendment and protect all of us, even if you're not doing a profession, you can, you know, walk down the street and criticize Joe Biden or, you know, whatever other political leader you want without fear of arrest. And, you know, I think those two things are two sides of the same coin in a way, and particularly with the rise of the Internet, you know, the distinction between a member of the press and an ordinary speaker has started to be exploded. So looking back to Watergate, to the Watergate era, and looking at it from the position of where we are now, what are the most significant changes in the relationship between government and the press? Well, um, I'm not an expert on government relationships between the press and, uh, you know, in high level executive branch officials or something. So I'm probably not the best to talk to just about that um, specific question. But I, if I were to broaden it out a little bit and just ask, you know, what are some of the differences and similarities that we faced with high level executive branch wrongdoing in Watergate and now um, high level executive branch wrongdoing that I believe Donald Trump did. Indeed, I wrote a book about it. I feel quite strongly yes. that Donald Trump broke several criminal laws um, it, while he was president, you know, so leaving aside all the, you know, Mar-a-Lago and stuff he did after, but just the stuff he did with Ukraine and the like. So some of the similarities, I think the most important thing that our constitutional system has to deal with is the fact that the president, the executive branch, and the president controls the executive branch, is given the full prosecution power in our constitution. He is a branch that is to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. And that sets up the Watergate problem. It sets up the Donald Trump in what problem when he was president. If you have a president who's himself engaged in wrongdoing, but is in control of the prosecution power, what do you do? So in Watergate, the president basically ordered the special prosecutor fired and had to go through a series of Justice Department officials 
culminating in the Saturday Night Massacre until the prosecutor was fired. And in Donald Trump's time, he tried every which way to undercut the Mueller investigation, including dangling pardons out, and ultimately could have had the power to fire Mueller. So that is, you know, when people criticize whether it was the Independent Counsel Act at the time or the special counsel regulations under which Mueller was appointed. And, you know, full disclosure, I wrote those regulations yes. when I was a young Justice Department staffer. But the point here is that it's the Constitution that in a way creates this problem because it gives the president full power over prosecutions. And everything that anyone's trying to devise, whether it's a special counsel regulations or the Independent Counsel Act, is struggling with that fundamental thing about our Constitution. It would require a constitutional amendment to uh, change that in one way, shape, or form. And, um, and in the absence of that, you have the problem. It goes back to juvenile, you know, 2,000 years ago, who guards the guardians? Mm-hmm. And do, do you think that the Constitution is flawed in that way, that it gives the president too much power? Um, I wouldn't say it's necessarily flawed in that at some point, someone's got to have the prosecution power. And so it makes sense that it be given to the executive. The problem occurs when it is the executive himself who's accused of committing a crime. And I think our founder's solution to that was to say impeachment is the remedy. You can have the president kicked out of office. Then, of course, he doesn't control the prosecution power, and then you can indict him. Mm -hmm. And the problem is impeachment requires a two-thirds vote to convict, which is really high. And so even when you have rampant evidence of lawbreaking, including very serious lawbreaking, as we did in the last administration, people vote party politics and impeachment doesn't become the mechanism to avoid this prosecution power dilemma that I said, you know, that I sketched out. So mm -hmm. I would say it's probably something about the interrelationship between impeachment and the take care power in the Constitution that creates the problem. And it's here where journalism plays such an important role, because to the extent we're ever going to have a successful impeachment, because the president is controlling the prosecution power, you're not going to have a full investigation by the president. You need to have a really vibrant, fearless press that's willing to report everything that a president has done. Do we have that press right now? I I think we do. Um, you know, in a way, the problem is uh, that we've lost a little bit of trust in the media. There's, you know, attacks on fake news and this and that. And so it's not that we don't have responsible journalists like yourself, like so many others we do, um, and at established newspapers. Uh, it's that well, there's also this kind of counter narrative of yahoos, frankly, who will just say anything in order to defend their guy. Mm -hmm. um, there's a loss of integrity that we're seeing, and it leaves ordinary people confused. What's right? What's wrong? But you're not suggesting when you say that, that the loss of integrity is, or are you, that it is the mainstream press that has lost the integrity. No, you're no, suggesting that you're suggesting that or you're saying that that is happening in government. 
Right. I mean, one of the beautiful things about the internet is it has allowed for the explosion of free speech and given power to so many people and voices and marginalized voices that we hadn't heard before. So there's something really democratic and wonderful. There's also this downside, which is people have lost their sense of what truth is in this process. Not everyone, but some, because there's just so many voices and you can throw up so many possible excuses um, to any sort of conduct, and it leaves people really confused. Like just to take one example, it's playing out right now in real time. Like no responsible lawyer that I have ever met in my life thinks that Donald Trump, in Donald Trump's claim that he could steal documents, put them at Mar-a-Lago, then that the Presidential Records Act justifies this is is right. I mean, I don't care if you're the most conservative lawyer, the most liberal lawyer, it doesn't matter. As long as you have a law degree, frankly, as long as you know how to read, that is not an argument any day of the week. Um, mm -hmm. And yet, Trump repeats it over and over again. And you have all these, you know, our, you know, silly, you know, so-called news outlets that repeat it. And it leaves people confused. Um, mm -hmm. And ultimately, it's not going to matter. This is going to go to a jury trial. And the jury's certainly going to be able to look at the law and the text of the law, and as will judges. And, you know, though I have no doubt about the outcome of that trial. But it leaves everyone for now in this limbo state of not trying to know who to believe and what is true and what is not. And journalism at its best, of course whether it's Woodward and Bernstein or whatever, is all about exposing the truth, exposing the truth. Right. But if you're exposing the truth to a large swath of the public, which has decided not to believe or not even to consider, what, you know, what recourse is there? And I mean, this is something I've really struggled with, and I know I don't, I don't have an answer for it, but, you know, what what do we do about that? What do we do about the fact that there's such resistance to truth? Yeah, well, one, I think, important thing, at least when we're talking about this discussion, you know, truth in the context of high-level executive branch wrongdoing, which is different than truth in other contexts in which the, you know, kind of smattering of different news outlets obscures truth, is that here you do have a legal process that's attendant to these controversies. So it's not like journalists are just writing about this all in a vacuum, hoping to persuade readers of one side or another. There's an actual formal legal process that's been invoked. Indeed, the most solemn legal process in our constitution and in our country, a criminal trial. Mm -hmm. And so that formalized process creates a space for really the right results to emerge. And this is something in actually the podcast episode that uh, number five on mine with John Mullaney on courtside, it's all about this question about the way in which there's an intersection between what the press is doing, what people are reporting, and what these law enforcement investigations are looking at. And so the combination of your profession, journalism, and my profession, lawyers, together can help yield actually the right result, even in an age of disinformation and fake news or whatever you want to call it, because they can work together to try and uncover the truth and have a formal process at the end of the day. You know, sure, will some people, you know, if Donald Trump is convicted in Florida, will some people say, oh, it's a fake prosecution or whatever? Sure. But 
you know, this would be under the highest standard known to the law. He'd have to be found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And he'd have to be found guilty by all 12 people on the jury. If anyone disagrees, he goes free. Mm. That is a very high standard. So in both the case of Watergate with Richard Nixon and now with Trump with various various um, sorts of misdeeds, you have a president or a former president who seemed to think or have even said in one way or another that they they make the rules. They're above the law. Uh, Nixon, I think, said, I'm quoting loosely, that if the president does it, it's legal. And Trump has said that kind of thing in, in many ways. What, you know, what are we to make of that? And is that is that just part and parcel of presidents, a couple of presidents who, you know, did criminal things? It's uh, incredibly shocking to me. So, you know, when I was in law school, and for the first many years when I taught constitutional law, I'd begin the section about the prosecution power by showing that Nixon 1977 interview. Um, I think it was with Robert Frost, if I recall. I can't remember someone like that. And anyway, the David Frost, but yes, David Frost. Yes, oh, yeah. <laughs> Robert, Robert Frost, Frost someone is else the said. poet. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So um, you know, you'd be like, you teach this, and the students would have their mouths open. They're like, a president said that. That's just preposterous. The idea that what a president, if a president does something, it's not illegal. And yet, Trump believed it. He said it over and over again. Of course, he doesn't believe it now when it comes to Biden, you know, so it shows you just, to, you know, what kind of a constitutional philosophy he has in which the president can do it. It's not illegal if his name is Donald Trump, but if the president does it when his name is Joe Biden, it's obviously illegal and abuse of power and so on. Um, but, you know, there's obviously nothing more foundational to our American system than the idea that no person is above the law. And our whole system of checks and balances, whether it's separation of powers and the kind of uh, horizontal dispersion of power or the vertical dispersion of power between states and the federal government, and that form of separation of powers, which we call federalism, you know, either way, these are all instances of the founders thinking no one person could ever control all the power in our system and declare what the law is. The whole idea of the Constitution is premised on the notion that that's wrong. So the name of your 2019 book is Impeach, the Case Against Donald Trump. And obviously, because it was published in 2019, this was well before January 6th, 2021. So I wonder how you think about January 6th, given that you already thought there was a strong case to remove Trump from office, I assume not just to impeach, but to convict. And, you know, how do you think, how do you place January 6th, 2021 as a historical marker? And, and how ultimately will history regard it? And is that still, is that still playing out? So, even before January 6th, I think it was January 3rd, when the Washington Post reported that Donald Trump was caught on audio tape saying to Georgia officials, you need to find me 11,780 votes. Right then, I thought this was an impeachable offense. And I wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post that day saying it. 
And people ridiculed me um, and said, that's ridiculous, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, we had the horrific events on January 6th, which I think seared in the public consciousness the absolute danger of what Donald Trump did that was revealed on January 3rd and in the weeks before, because this was a set play he had. It was a play even before the election to go and declare victory, to throw up as much doubt as possible in various states, to file bogus court cases to try and sow doubt about the election, to appoint seven sets of fake electors or what he called alternate electors to have state legislatures throw out the popular vote and send these names of alternate electors to Washington. I mean, alternate electors are like alternate facts. There's no such thing. Mm -hmm. um, and yet all of this was being done. And then, of course, we saw the horrific consequences on January 6th. Um, in my mind, I can't think of a more despicable act as the president of the United States, as any government official, than the way he acted, not just on January 6th, but in the weeks leading up to January 6th. Um, you know, I saw the opposite side of that. When I was a young attorney, I worked with Al Gore in the 2000 election on his Supreme Court team. And, you know, of course, elections are bitter fought and personal and so on. But I don't doubt for a second, I never did in those 36 days, that Al Gore would think about the country first and not himself first. You never, you're saying you never doubted that. I never doubted it mm -hmm. for a second. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and Trump, it was always about him. It was never about uh, what was right for the country. And, you know, that kind of selfishness obliviousness to law or traditions and the peaceful transfer of power. All of that, to me, it's not just impeachable. It is impeachable. It's also criminal. And, you know, a very respected federal judge in California, Judge David Carter, has already looked at the evidence and the preliminary evidence just that the January 6th committee had uncovered and said, it's more likely than not that Donald Trump committed very serious federal felonies, including obstruction of an official proceeding on January 6th. And I suspect that is what Jack Smith, the special counsel, the prosecutor at the Justice Department who's looking at this, will also find. And so your question to me a little while back was, how is history going to view this? Well, I don't think the history books are fully written on this yet. We obviously have the January 6th committee's investigation. But now there's a criminal investigation and what I suspect will be a criminal trial. And I don't think that Donald Trump, I don't care what your politics are, will look good at the end of that criminal trial. I think he will look pretty much like the textbook picture of what an insurrectionist looks like. Mm -hmm. And someone who has no business being not just near the levers of power, Someone who has no business being free. What he did, and at least what the evidence looks like, and of course he's entitled to the presumption of innocence and all of the protections of a criminal trial. But at the end of it, I suspect that he's going to be found guilty of a very serious set of federal crimes. Mm -hmm. So now, what what about citizens in this in this moment 
which I at least think is a crisis moment in American democracy. I'm not sure if you do or not, and I'd like to know. But uh, how should citizens approach this moment, and what would your call to action be for them? Yeah, to me, the biggest and most important thing is to figure out the credibility of the source on which you're relying on something. So I was a high school and college debater, and the thing we used to do was we'd research for like 30, 40 hours a week, um, any given topic. But there was a premium placed on the source that would say the most outrageous thing, that such and such will lead to a war or this or that, blow up the planet. And you'd look for the most extreme claims, and you didn't care who said it. You just say, you know, Jill Thomas, writing in 1986, said X, and nobody knew who Jill Thomas was. It didn't matter the credibility of the source. It just mattered what they said. Mm. And I feel a little bit like the entire American ecosystem has become like a bad high school debate in which, you know, you just have anyone that says anything, and then someone else can counter it with anyone who says the opposite of anything. And um, nobody really cares who's saying it. They just care what is being said. Mm. And so, and that creates this cacophony of voices and a, a destruction of truth. And so to me, like the most important thing is who's saying this? What's their expertise? What do other experts think about what this person is saying? Are there any motivations that this person has that I should know about in making that claim. And, uh, you know, I, I just like to see that. I think some high schools now are starting to teach that kind of critical reading skill. Mm -hmm. um, and I'd love to see more and more of that. And I do think that's our obligation as citizens to try and uncover the truth. And um, unfortunately, you know, the plurality of voices has just made that hard. Right. It's interesting that that plurality of voices has such a positive side and such a negative side. I mean, we are exactly. hearing voices now that we did not hear during the Watergate era or the 80s or the 90s, and the internet has brought us all these diverse voices. And at the same time, it's created what you call cacophony. Exactly. And just to give you one example, I had the privilege of defending the Affordable Care Act in court. And um, you know, one of the most moving things was the way in which people would reach me on social media with their stories about healthcare and about insurance and this and that. You know, before the rise of social media, I don't think they would have heard any of those voices directly. Right. But social media, and I would say email also, mm -hmm. all of that enabled those technological inventions, enabled me to hear their lived experiences, and it absolutely impacted how I thought about the case. Mm. So a final question. Do you think that we, that we, that is, do you think that the United States of America is at a crisis moment in terms of its democracy? And are you... How optimistic or pessimistic are you about how it's going to play out? Uh, I am by nature very much an optimist. I think about the facts that, fact that my parents came to this country from another one, landed on its shores with very little, um, and 
it gave them such a wonderful home and me such a wonderful home. And I think built into the DNA of this country is a commitment to equal opportunity, to justice, to treating people fairly. I do think that's what most Americans want. I don't think it's what the former president wanted, and I think he's trying to appeal to a very narrow slice of the population. But I'm optimistic that the better angels in our country will prevail. Now, having said that, I do think we were in a very high stakes environment from 2016 to 2020, um, or to really January 20th, 2021, mm -hmm. um, in which things could have really gone off the rails. They did go off the rails in any number of ways. I mean, you know, remember the U.S. Supreme Court found that President Trump's cabinet lied in court in the citizenship census case, uh, for example. I mean, to have cabinet officials lying um, and things like that, I mean, this is really very dangerous. And obviously, what happened on January 6th. Um, but I do feel like right now, we're starting to restore that equilibrium. You know, there's criminal investigations that are ongoing. There was a very extensive congressional investigation that happened. And what worries me is that some people, some Republicans play party politics and try and minimize this stuff when they know better. I mean, look at what Mitch McConnell said right after January 6th or what Kevin McCarthy said or what Lindsey Graham said. You know, now they're all scared of their own shadows or maybe scared of Donald Trump's shadow. Sure. But at one point, they, they, they knew what was right and wrong. I'm confident that the American people will help get them there ultimately. And so, yes, I'm quite optimistic about our future. Good. That's a great note to end on. Neil, thank you very, very much for sharing this podcast with me and with uh, my listeners. And everyone should check out Neil Katyal's podcast, which is called Courtside and is very fascinating. So uh, thank you very much. And I appreciate all the, the, the great thoughts and congratulations on your recent Supreme Court victory. I think we can call it that in Moore v. Harper. Is that right? That's correct. It, it was yes. definitely a big smashing victory. And I'm really psyched. <laughs> As yes, is American democracy. <laughs> right. Good. Thank you very much. Thank Neil. you. Privilege to be with you. Well, I was certainly moved by Neil Katyal's answer about his optimism and his reasons for optimism. And also very appreciative of the expertise he brings on Donald Trump's legal troubles and how they're likely to play out. He certainly doesn't waffle on that question. Also, I was struck by how he spoke about the narrow escape America has apparently had from the events during the Trump administration from 2016 and right into early January of 2021 and where we go from here. He really brings incredible insight, I think, and expertise and, and balance to these questions. And I find him to be a particularly credible voice and also a very inspiring one. Coming up in two weeks on American Crisis, I'm very pleased to have an interview with Jelani Cobb, the dean of the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and a very well-respected writer for The New Yorker magazine. 
In addition to the podcast, you can find the full American Crisis experience on my Substack, Margaret Sullivan at Substack.com. Production services for American Crisis are provided by Voltage. It's produced by J.E. Peterson and edited and mixed by Tyler Morissette. The music for this show was composed by Crosstown Traffic. This is American Crisis. I'm Margaret Sullivan. Thanks for listening.